The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 1, we're going to be picking up tonight basically in verse 11 slash 12. When we ended off last week, we were kind of sort of in the middle of 11, and so that's almost where we're going to begin. I won't do much of a recap other than to say I would encourage you if you are studying, I think that you are, if you're studying this on your own at home, that you'll continue basically for the most part just to read the book several times over. Uh, some of the outlines I provided a few weeks ago, uh, they're still available. There's a few up here, I think. They're still available on the website as well. And you can look into some of those things. I think it's a good guide as far as when you read these chapters to be able to stop and say, okay, this chapter is about, or this chapter is about, or this section. One of the outlines is much more detailed. And so you can say, well, this section, these three verses or four, however many, uh, you can look for this idea or another. And that's kind of the way I use outlines. Every time I begin to study a book on my own, at least, I try to outline the book as I read through it, generally about eight or ten times before I really start digging down. So maybe that'll work for you. Maybe it won't. You can try if it does. But uh, the outline, the main outline, if I were going to constantly stay in one that we're using is kind of a longer outline, uh, basically, there's five sections, the way I have it divided out, um, or really four sections, I should say, divided out one per chapter, and then subdivided under that. And as I've told you many times, when you're looking at chapter one, verses one and two stand apart, kind of as an introduction, more or less a basic introduction like the Apostle Paul would always give, or a greeting, you might call it that. And then verses three through 11, uh, pretty much break out into the next section or the next heading. I don't know how your Bible, some of your Bible's copies at least have headings, and you may or may not have headed that way, but typically verses 3 through 11 would head out as being one section. Uh, in the Greek language, it backs up the English that we're reading. That would have pretty much just been one paragraph. It's a paragraph consisting of three sentences, but basically one paragraph is what you would have there down through that 11th verse. And the 11th verse read, uh, "...being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, unto the glory and the praise of God." And of course, I've pointed out several times, when you look at the idea of being filled, F-I-L-L-E-D, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here uh, is a word that carries with the idea of being completely filled, filled to the brim. Uh, you might picture uh, either a cup that is just beginning to overflow or at least a cup where if you really pour it carefully, you can take a glass of water, for example, and pour it till that, they call it the surface tension, I guess, uh, till it kind of bulges up. You can almost see the water right above the top. That's where the Apostle Paul, of course inspired of God to write this, wants the brethren in Philippi to get to, and even us as we read and study it today, and we kept emphasizing the fact that what he wants them to be filled with are what he calls here the fruits of righteousness, which are by, you could say they come through or by Jesus Christ unto or into the purpose of giving glory to God. And so as we're filled with the fruits of righteousness, as we continue to become more and more and more Christ-like, 
The end result is not that we get glory, obviously, but God gets the glory. And hopefully that's the way we all live our lives. Now, am I saying that every Christian lives their life perfectly? No. If, if they did, I certainly wouldn't be one. We do not do that. But hopefully we represent God in a way for the vast majority of our time that someone would look and say, okay, that person, they may not even know. They may not know that we would call ourselves Christians. They may not know that we attend a church, if you will, to use it loosely. Uh, they may not know that necessarily, but they may say, you know, something's different about that person. That person is, is just, they're, they're kind, they're loving, they're compassionate. I don't know what the characteristics, they're giving. And oftentimes, the first impression, really all the time, I guess, the first impression that people would have about Christ even is probably going to come through our lives. So what they think about us is going to reflect on God. And that's what the idea of verse 11 reminds us of, is that the more we're filled with the fruits of the Spirit or the fruits of righteousness, uh, therefore we give glory to God. And we ought to be glorifying God all the while. And then beginning in verse 12, uh, and you could divide this out different ways, depending on which of the, the outlines that I handed out, I divided it a little bit differently myself. But basically, verses 12 through 30 uh, carry through the rest of the chapter. Obviously, verse 30 is the last verse in chapter 1, but carries through the rest of the chapter with really only one topic or one heading in mind. And I have called that, for lack of better purposes, the explanation to the believers. In the first section, 1 through 11, we titled that as the supplication for the believers. That is, Paul's praying for them. The word supplication is just the word used to say God is praying and asking. Uh, Paul is praying, asking God to bless them. And then the explanation of the believers picks up in verse 12, goes to the end of the chapter. Of course, that subdivides out. We'll do that as we go through. But basically, in a nutshell, the next section of this, 12 through 30, the Apostle Paul is going to continue to convince the brethren there that the situation he is in, remember Paul when he writes this book, is actually in prison. He's actually in bonds. He literally, uh, even physically, is either strapped to the wall and or most likely in that case, the way they would do it, is they would strap him to another soldier or to a soldier, to a guard. And so he's in a terrible situation. He's not in a comfortable place. And this book that he writes, the whole book, I mean by that the book of Philippians, is about joy. And it's about rejoicing in, in our troubles. And so Paul is in a very difficult place in the whole of the book. And particularly here in verses 12 through the end of this chapter, verse 30, Paul is reminding them that, look, no matter where I'm at, no matter my situation, no matter my struggles, number one, I'm going to rejoice and number two, he's reminding them, you could rejoice as well because what's happening to me right now that to you may look terrible and it may look like, you know, I've said it before and this is just my opinion, in, time, in Paul's time, maybe since, Paul is probably what you might consider as the greatest Christian missionary who ever lived. That is, aside from Jesus, he carried the gospel to more places, affected more people, changed more lives with the gospel that he preached than anybody. Now, if that's ever been done since, I don't know it. Scripture depicts him as being that. The majority of the book of Acts, for example, at least from chapters basically 9 and forward, all surround the life and work of Paul. 
There are other characters there, other the apostles intervene and such, but all really surrounds the life of Paul and the work that he did specifically as an individual as he went about his, what we call his missionary journeys. And so Paul tells them, it doesn't matter that I'm in prison. It doesn't matter that I seem to be bound down and, and not able to preach and not able to, some would call, share the gospel or to teach about the Lord. It doesn't matter because even though I'm where I am, the gospel is still getting preached. Uh, people are still uh, receiving it in such a way as to, to be saved by it, and it's not being hurt. As a matter of fact, we've already read across verse 12 on last week, and we're going to pick up in it in about 15 seconds. Uh, Paul is saying there is really a huge advantage that is eventually and is even at the moment coming because I'm in prison. So that's kind of the idea of verses 12 through 30. Verse 12 says... But, he says, but I would, I would that ye should understand, meaning really consider and think this through. I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So I don't know that this happened. I suggested last week this is at least a hypothetical a possibility that when they sent this man Epaphroditus, which we don't read about really until chapter 2 and verse 25, but when they sent this, this local preacher, Epaphroditus, and sent him out to go check on Paul, see what's happening with Paul, see what the deal is with Paul. Why is he in prison? Uh, how is this affecting his ministry? How is this going to change the outlook of the gospel? And, and anything else they would question. When Epaphroditus comes to him to check on him, the first thing that I think Paul replied back in their conversation is, you let the brethren know that me being in prison is not a disadvantage, but is, it is an advantage. And that's, that's what he basically says, verse 12 and following. Again, I'll read the verse again. He said that you would understand. That word is the word gnosko. We've talked about that Greek word before. It just means the know-it, the know-it-alls. And Paul said you need to completely know, absolutely know, that the things that are happening to me have fallen out rather. Now, I did a lot of digging, particularly today, Throughout the day, I kept coming back to this text, trying to look at it again. And I did a lot of digging on the word rather. Maybe you've got the King James translation. It may say the word rather. There may be some other uh, words there. But the word rather there literally carries the idea of the majority of the cases. It means even though you may think that this is hurting the gospel, and you may think that this is hurting me, in the majority of those cases, that's not true. It's the back opposite. That's the way at least I say it, being from Mumford. It is the back opposite of what you think. If you think this is hurting me and hurting the gospel and hurting the cause of Christ, it's not that. It's the back opposite of that. He said it is rather unto the furtherance. That word furtherance means to the progress of the gospel. That is, the gospel is actually being advanced, literally there, because I'm in prison. Now, we talked about that, I know, a few weeks ago as we were kind of tying some of this together. And I know Andy commented, Coach Stevens commented a few as we were talking about the idea that when people looked at Paul, and this is kind of sort of what happened in, in verse 12, 
when people looked at Paul and said, some of them said, okay, we got him. <laughs> we got him in prison. We got him in jail. We got him right where we want him. That'll stop the preaching. These people will look at that and say, well, I guess Paul wasn't all what he said he was because he's in prison now. And maybe we all just carry on with our lives because that gospel or the message that he spoke, you know, look at, where, look at what it'll get you. Look at where you'll end up. Paul said, no, it's progress. Because now there were people on the other side of that coin that could look and say, well, you know what? I, I may have questioned Paul when he was standing in the synagogues. Well, not in the case of Philippi, but when he was standing in the court streets and, you know, standing in the markets and preaching this gospel. But I'm beginning to wonder now because he's in prison and I hear tell he's still talking about it. He's still preaching this. There may be some truth to this. There may be something that's, you know, really valid about this because Paul is continuing on. And that even goes as far as, I know we mentioned this, as far as later in life, not, not right here, but Paul and the rest of the apostles, uh, basically most of all of them would eventually die for this cause. And every time one died, even though they probably thought, well, well, we got Peter, we got this one, we got that one. Nope, nope. Every time that happened, they said, well, if a man would die for this, there must be something to it. And the truth is, in a sense, you and I as Christians today, we both die for it and live for it. We die for it because we ought to be giving up our old, our old manners, give up the old man, put off the old man, other texts would teach, but we live for it because it's the gospel that brings life. It's the truth of Christ that brings such. And so Paul says, this has come out even for the furtherance of the gospel. Now verse 13, he says, so that, or in order so that, so that, in my, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in the palace and in all other places. Now the idea of something being manifest is it's clearly seen. And he said, in my bonds, people are clearly seeing not just me, but they're seeing the gospel even in the palace. Now I know again, we mentioned this as well. The palace right there, depending on what translation you have, some translations... Uh, talk about the imperial guard or something of that sort. The idea is there that Paul is not just affecting people who are alongside him in prison. Remember, Acts chapter 15 and 16, that's the background of Paul writing this book. That's where you go back and you say, well, this is where it all started. This is where Paul goes to Philippi. He lands himself in prison. This is what he does, chapter uh, 16, verse uh, 24 and forward. This is where he and Silas are praising God, singing praises, praying to God throughout the night. And as that earthquake came down, remember the Philippian jailer, I don't know if it was the one chained to him, but at least someone there in the building was convinced by that because he looks at it and says, well, you know what, I, I may as well just take my own life now because all the prisoners are going to be gone. Paul said, no, we're all here. Uh, we're all still here. And he ultimately teaches that man the gospel and his whole household, and they're saved. That's what comes out of that. In doing such, Paul not only preached to those of the lowly prisons, but he preached to kings. He would go before even the highest of people. And these people, a you know, grouping of people in the palace, verse 13, or people who had great influence. Verse 14. And many of the brethren of the Lord are waxing confident in my bonds and are much more bold to speak the word 
without fear. So what happens as a result, Paul, verse 12, 13, 14, to kind of sandwich them back together, what is happening with you being in prison? What, what is that changing, they might ask? What is that going to change about, again, your life, about the gospel, about the truth of Christ? What does that change? Paul says, well, it doesn't hurt it. It, it advances it. It moves it forward. And when it does that, it does two things. Number one, verse 13, it made Christ manifest even in the palace. And so more people were actually affected in higher places than would have been otherwise. Now, again, this is just total my guess, my imagination probably. But you can just imagine how far this could have gone. I'm not implying that it did because it really didn't. But how far this could have gone if Paul goes in and he preaches and teaches to the people in prison. And he affects the guards, maybe the palace guards. And then they go in and they begin to teach and to teach more and more higher ups. It would be something that's similar to the fact that if, you know, if we were to have the opportunity, well, we had the opportunity, if we were to take the opportunity, I guess you would say, to preach to the cabinet of the president, and then ultimately they go and, and convince the president. And then he stands up, I pray this will happen one day, and then he stands up and says, you know what, forget this. This is a Christian nation and we're going to be such. And we're going to lead you as a Christian. Sounds far-fetched. Uh, with the power of God, who knows? But that is the situation at least Paul is in. So that's one thing. The second thing we just read in verse 14, he says, because I'm in prison, there are brethren now who are what the King James says are waxing confident by my bonds. Now, again, I do this pretty much every week. The way that I draw and connect and point arrows and highlight in my Bible, you may or may not write in your Bible, but the way I do in mine uh, to help me to remember and to notate and really to study, I have drawn an arrow from the word confident, King James, verse 14, from the word confident back over, just back a skip a word really, to in the Lord, or the phrase in the Lord. Why are they confident? How are they confident? Where are they confident? They're confident in the Lord. They're not confident in their self. The brethren there have not decided, well, you know, if Paul uh, can, can go, and they're being influenced this way, don't get me wrong, it's a positive attitude. But they're not looking at Paul and saying, well, you know, if Paul preached, I can preach. That's good. Hope that they do that. But it's not Paul that is really ultimately giving them strength. When you boil this down, if they are waxing confident, they're doing it in the Lord. They're not outside of them. They're doing it in the Lord. And that's where the confidence uh, should come from. Now, just looking at a few of the words here, um, the phrase there, waxing confident. The word confident means they have been persuaded. Their confidence is not built on a, a, a blowing leaf in the wind or a feather in the wind. Their confidence has been built on the fact that they have been persuaded. Now, obviously persuaded by the gospel. That's the whole part of it. But they've been persuaded, and I just made this point, or, or mentioned this point. They've been persuaded by saying, you know what? Look at Paul. Look at what he's enduring. Look at what he's dealing with. Now look at how he's reacting to that. He's not only getting stronger. The gospel is spreading farther. 
And, and we can be bold about this. So I don't know how many people did. I, I know some did, the way he even mentioned such. I don't know how many people did, but there were someone out there, some group out there, that I guess went down to the city squares maybe themselves, and they, they began to preach and teach. Because maybe they say, well, Paul may be in prison. He'll do his work there, but we've got to continue the work out here. And so they're waxing confident. Now, Again, continuing to remind myself the trial that Paul was under and the trial and the situation that they could be under. Because I realized that Paul, to an extent, had a target on his back. You know, we, we're, up to, we're up to Philippians, so we're into, up to Acts chapter, I mentioned Acts earlier. Acts chapter 16 is where we are, basically, in studying and reading this book. There are several chapters between Paul on the road to Damascus chapter 9 and 16. There are several cities already that he's gone into and places that he's been and congregations or churches that have been started in those areas. All that's already happened. But even with that happening, you can only assume that these people are looking and saying, okay, that was dangerous for Paul to do that. When Paul preached and Paul... You can go back to not Paul, but you can see an example of other of the apostles, Peter and John, for example. Read Acts chapters 4 and 5. When they pulled Peter and John off the streets and pulled them out of the synagogues and out of the public markets and said, look, we're, we're going to beat you, and they did. <laughs> we're going to beat you half to death, and if you do this again, we're going to kill you. What was their reaction? They went right back at it. Now, Paul hadn't got to get right back at it yet, but guess what Paul's going to do? He's going to get right back at it. And so you got to understand that the thing that got Paul put into prison at the time is the thing that could get these brethren in prison as well. They're not, uh, they're not apparently, all of them at least, are not afraid. And so we too can have some level of boldness because of that. Specifically, he says, they're waxing confidence by my bonds and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, a few terms, there are several terms I'd like to discuss, but I first want to look at the word, word. The word, word. Uh, when you read across this, it, it means what it does, but the way we use word for ourselves is we're, if I say, I'm going to, I don't know if I'd ever say this. Would I walk up to you and say, I'm going to speak a word to you? Probably not. But when we use the word, word, we're talking about vehicles of communication. That's what words are. That would be your Webster Standard Dictionary definition. A word is a vehicle of communication. It is a way to communicate. In Bible speak, the word word can mean something like that. It can mean to communicate, to talk, to conversate. But there are other levels that go along with that. Now, this, this gets deeper than that. And as I've probably said before, I don't, want to agree, I don't want to get too geeky or Greeky, because these are Greek words that back this English up. But there are three, there, there are four, but there are three main Greek words. Remember, God had this to be inspired, and when it was originally penned, the majority of the New Testament, written down in the Greek language, Ultimately for us, we're blessed, translated ultimately into English. But there are three Greek words mainly that were used to, and to be translated W-O-R-D. The first one, it, it, to think about at least, 
is the word rhema. You say, what in the world is rhema? Rhema. I can't spell it. It's a Greek word. Rhema means speak. And that's used. There are times in the New Testament when the rhema of God, speaking God's word is used. And, and anytime you read a sermon of Jesus or Peter or Paul or anybody else, and you're reading about them speaking, that's what they're doing. They're using W-O-R-D word to rhema or to speak. There's another word that can be translated W-O-R-D. And that's a Greek word that looks like graphe. You say, what is that? Graphe means the graphs. We get our English word for autograph. It means to write it. And so basically everything that we have today, even though it may have at one time been spoken, it's in our, for our understanding, it is now written. So the Bible is the written word. And then you've got the third one. And the first two are very important. The spoken word, extremely important. The written word, especially for us, of extreme importance. We, we need this. We have to have this so we can know what, the, what we would say the Bible says, but what God says. But then there's the word we're looking at. The W-O-R-D, the last translation or last original word is the Greek word logos. You say, what does logos mean? Logos is the living word. So you had the spoken word sometimes. You had the written word sometimes. But right here you had the living word. Now, when you see the living word being mentioned oftentimes, it's talking almost, not, not every single. But in the majority of cases, the Logos should be reminding us of the living word, who was Jesus. It is Jesus. John chapter 1 is the divine commentary on that. Verses 1 to 3 talk about in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And then here's where we begin to understand it. And the Word was God. And then you find out by verse 14, talking about the Word, it says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Son, full of grace and truth. So that's Jesus. So... Looking at this and just reading it to fill in the blanks here, Paul in some senses says, And many of the brethren were waxing confident, verse 14, by my bonds and are much more bold to speak about Jesus. They're willing to preach the word. They're willing to talk about Jesus. And he says they do it without fear. Now, many of you, I don't know if you have a center column reference uh, chain there or uh, some references that say, okay, when you read this verse, it's a good idea to go look at that verse. Don't know if you have that or not, but you may have, or probably should have, a reference back to 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 7 says, For God has not given us, not given us, the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So, so it's, not, it's not something that God wants us to do, which is to fear. And particularly in that case, contextually, particularly not to fear talking about Jesus. Now, am I afraid to talk about Jesus? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes that's why I don't. Or oftentimes in certain situations that's why I don't. 
And it may be that I'm afraid in not many cases nowadays, although it seems to be increasing, it's not necessarily that I think, well, if I mention the name of Jesus, somebody's going to take me out of the parking lot, whoop me. Not necessarily that. It's that I don't want to cross a line, you know. People say, well, you, know, you better not talk about politics and religion. Well, the last uh, couple of years, we've had no fear we're talking about politics, most people. So why not speak about religion? I mean, if someone's going to get offended, I would rather they be offended by my choice of who I follow as far as God rather than my choice for president. I mean, if you're going to influence them, you may as well influence them for the best thing you can. And if you're going to offend them, you may as well have them to be offended over that. I mean, I would rather someone say, well, I, you know, I just don't like you because you, you love God. Okay. I mean, if you see that to be a valid argument, then we'll argue. That's fine. Rather than, at least, God has not given us that spirit of fear. Verse 15, he says, and this is where the tide really ramps up. They've come to Paul. Maybe they've questioned Paul and said, okay, Paul, what's going on with you? He says, no worries. The gospel's fine. I'm fine. God, God is getting more glory and more attention. Verse 15, he says, for some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. So with Paul being in prison, and you'll see this developing over the next few verses, really through verse 18 at least, with Paul being in prison, there are some. Now, I like to continue to remind myself, they're just some. Everybody's not like this. Everybody doesn't have the bad attitude and the wrong motives. There are some who are preaching Christ meaning they're willing to go out and preach out of envy and strife. I don't know what their attitude was. Any, anything that we suggest over the next four verses or so would nearly be a guess. It seems that some people were saying, who, who considered themselves to be preachers, were saying, well, you know, Paul's in prison. Now we can get our attention. You know, Paul was the, 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 big, the big man in town, and every time he preached, people flocked to hear him, and, you know, he, he had the crowds around him and all, and, you know, we couldn't get any attention. We couldn't get anybody to care about us, but he's in prison now, so now I'll step up. Now, if you want to step up, or if these men wanted to step up because they really cared that the gospel was being spread, or they really cared that Christ, the truth of God was being taught, that Christ was being exalted, that's, that's wonderful. But if they did it because they wanted to be popular, which is kind of the mindset that's in this verse and the up and coming verses, wrong motive. He said, some preach Christ, even of envy and strife, but some also goodwill. So some mean well, some are doing it right for the right reasons. Some it's for envy and for strife. Now, this will be said more in the next few verses, but as I read these verses, verse 15, 16, 17, 18, I have to pause regularly and look in the mirror and make sure that I don't have that attitude. Because I can tell you, I'll just, I'll, I'll just tell you the way it is. Maybe, you've, maybe you have or haven't been this way. Most of you aren't preachers per se. But I've stood back many a times and thought, you know what, I can't stand that boy. I, you know, that preacher, I can't stand him. Why can't you stand him, Jim? Let's, I'm looking at myself talking. Why can't you stand him? Because he's a false teacher? No, he's, he preaches truth. Because he's talented? No, well, you know, really, I don't mind that. Why? 
because he's popular? I mean, I, I, one flash is in my mind right now, and I just, I just really don't like the fellow. I've crossed paths with him several times. And some of that has to do with the attitude. Some of that has to do with the fact that he may be prideful, and he may be, you know, the guy who is popping his suspenders every time he walks to a pulpit. And he wants attention. He wants glory. And, and uh, that happens. We haven't gotten through it yet, but what Paul is going to ultimately say about a man like that is, if he is preaching the truth, now that's the key, if he is preaching Christ, that's truth. Fine with me. He doesn't have to like me. He doesn't have to uh, bow down to me, Paul might think. He doesn't have to be more or less popular. Not that Paul was ever concerned about something, but he doesn't have to be more or less popular than me. It makes no difference if he's preaching truth. So somebody says, well, I don't like, you know, his attitude's bad. He's in it for the wrong reasons. He, he's, you know, he, all he, he don't ever want to preach anywhere but the big churches. He don't want to be at the country church. He wants to go to the big church. And I've heard that. I have heard, I heard a fellow say one time, you know, this is a very well-known preacher in our brotherhood who, who right now holds a high position in one of our Christian colleges. And I know for a fact, I've heard him say, you know, I prefer to preach in congregations about 600 or more. I don't like that. That ain't right. Does he preach truth? Is his heart right? Doesn't seem to be. Not my, not my perspective. But ultimately, that's where Paul will get. Verse 16, he says, The one, now remember, he's grouped these up, some of envy and strife, some of goodwill. He says, The one preached Christ of contention, not of sincerity, supposing to add the affliction of my bonds. So somebody's saying, you know what, as they preach, they say, well, I'm, I'm in town now and, and you get to hear me this Sunday because Paul's in prison. And, and you got a good preacher today because Paul's in prison. You don't have to listen to his garbage anymore. He's, he's in prison. Now, is that a quote? Obviously not, but that's a, it's an attitude. Some preach Christ of contention. They're willing to become a rivalry. That word contention means to have a rivalry. Two people butting heads or groups of people butting heads and they're causing division by their attitude. They're not sincere. He says not sincerity. They think or suppose that they're adding to my afflictions. You may, uh, you may want to write this down. I don't know if you'd write it in your Bible or not. You might. You might write on a notepad. I've heard this before, and that is God hits a pretty good lick with a crooked stick. God hits a pretty good lick with a crooked stick. You know, some, some of these guys, some people, some of us, uh, I, have, I have been and, and could be tomorrow, kind of shady, kind of crooked, bad motives, you know, wrong, wrong mindsets, envy, strifeful, uh, causing division, contention. Not sincere. But is Christ being taught? Now, I used to look at this. We hadn't quite got to this. This is really the next verse, verse 17, 18. I used to look at this and say, well, Paul's talking about the false teachers. 
you know, people who are kind of mixing a little bit in with the gospel and they've changed the gospel. I don't believe that anymore because he says too many times, really in all of these verses, he mentions they preach what? They preach in Christ. So they're not false teachers. Their mind is not right. Their attitude is not right. But they're, they're, what they're teaching is correct. And that's the divide. Exactly. Yeah, Simon, Simon wanted what he could get out of the gospel, but he had learned the truth. He knew the truth, and I suppose was intending to teach the truth. But his, uh, his motives were wrong. And that's how it can fall out for any of us. It can it become that. But he says some of them, uh, he says, verse 17, he says, but others, and this is the contrary, not contention, not of insincerity or sincerity, lacking sincerity, not trying to cause affliction in my bonds, but the other of love and knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. So there are some that preach, again, backing up to the last phrase in verse 15. Some preach goodwill. Some preach for love or because of the love that they have for the gospel. Now, we're almost out of time, so I'm, almost, I'm positive I'll have to come back to this next week. So you can mark 17, roughly 18. <coughs> it's where we'll begin another day. But the King James translation, well, first let me ask this. Is, is anyone using a translation that's not the King James? I know Shane is teaching from the new King James, oh, not the new, the new American Standard, NASB. What have you got? <coughs> new American Standard. And uh, I taught for eight weeks about translations, and the New American Standard Bible is an extremely accurate translation. It's a more modern translation than the King James, but extremely accurate. There are others. There are many translations that are extremely accurate. Some are not, obviously, but many are. Examples might be the ASV, the NASB, the KJV, or King James, the ESV, and the list goes on, others that are accurate and, and such. Any other translations? I'm just mentioning this because what we're going to get into in a minute. NASB, I've got the King James Anything different? Some of you got phones, you got everything you want. Yeah, I know how that is. Uh, and that's, that's where I get this sheet right here I'm about to look at, right off the phone. If you compare, we're not going to hardly touch this, so you'll hear some of this next week. If you compare translations, when you're looking at verse 16 and verse 17, you'll get a little bit lost. Verse 16 says, I'm going to read verse 16, so if you have the, anything different, you can look at something different. Verse 16 says, The one preached Christ of contention, not of sincerity, supposing uh, to add to the affliction of my bonds. The, new, uh, the NASB, for example, says, The latter do it out of love, similar, Knowing that, here's the phrase that's not in the King James, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The King James mentions that in verse 17. Right. Went on, I thought, okay, so 
in verse 17, you'll hear this phrase, or something to the extent of this phrase. Basically, Paul says, God picked me to preach the gospel, and that's what I'm doing. And that's what I will do. And we'll mention that again uh, the next time we get together, because I do want to expand on that. But I, I would challenge you, if you want to do some homework, and particularly if you got this little flippy computer phone stuff and an app, look between now and next week. Just read over and over verse 16 and verse 17 in any translation you can find. You'll find some differences, and we're going to point some of those out. Uh, there, there's a, they teach essentially exactly the same thing, but they're worded so differently till you may say, what's he talking about? You know, what's, I, I, that's not what mine says. It, it, no, it doesn't say it. It doesn't say it in the same way. But Paul is going to say that he is appointed for the defense of the gospel. And then verse 17, Paul says, King James at least, I've been set, meaning I've been set in the place for the defense of the gospel. So we'll get back to that. Actually, it'll be Sunday morning, the way it looks right now. I'll be teaching Sunday morning. Shane will be out of town. So thank you for your attention.